tonight by turning to Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Uh, it's one of the, um, another one of the promises that we've been going over, or will be going over here. And just to um, review some of the great passages of Scripture that can be used in those times of need. This is a uh, wonderful verse that when we read through it, um, we wanted to remember the faith rest drill that we've been going through. You grab a fragment of scripture, a verse, a promise, a story, and then develop a rationale around with it. That second step of developing a rationale around the verse could be looked upon as your own private prayer meeting of the soul. And then finally, step three is that you are able to trust it. Well, in verse 32, uh, it's one of Paul's great promises directed to Christian, directed to believers. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? There's a whole bunch of promises in here, but verse 32 is kind of a nice one to remember. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all. It's an argument that goes from the greater to the lesser. Notice that? Paul uses those kind of, that kind of logic. From the greater to the lesser. The greater thing is, what is God, the greatest thing that God has done for you and for any other believer? And that is saving you through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the logic is eloquently simple in verse 32. It says... If he didn't spare his son, that is, he delivered him before us all, that's, that's salvation. If that's what he did for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And that's the lesser. It's easier for God to give blessing on the basis of the salvation than it is to provide the salvation in the first place. So, Romans 8.32, if you're not familiar with it, is a classic promise. It's one of those wonderful sections. And behind that promise, of course, going from the argument from the greater to the lesser, stands a whole theology of the scriptures. And I put the chart up on the board here that uh, I use from time to time to show the biblical position on how we know. A much unappreciated thing. Unbelievers will laugh at Christians and say, they, you know, oh, you just believe, as though, you know, that's something stupid to do. And uh, there's, an, there's an attitude abroad that faith is a synonym for weak knowledge. Um, we use it, you have to be careful because we tend to do that personally in our own lives, where we say, um, if you had to choose between I know something is true, and you change that in your phraseology to I believe something is true. Nine times out of ten, what is that doing to certainty? It's dropping it. And that's the connotation. And you've got to be careful of that connotation because that carries over into the use of faith and believe. And it's false. As far as the Bible's concerned, faith is not weak knowledge. All men know God exists. So it's not, I lie, yes, I believe he might exist. That's not, the, that's not what the Scripture's saying. That is not the text of Scripture. It doesn't come from the Scriptures. The scriptures say, all men know God exists. So, that's certain. Then what is faith? Faith is a moral and ethical issue of whether I bow my knee to the God I know. That's where faith comes in. Do I really trust Him to be for me? 
That's where the thing comes in. See, a machine doesn't trust, or you don't trust a machine, you trust a person. The object of the trust is a person in Scripture. And the person here is God. So I trust God to be for me. That is, he's going to bless me or save me. And if you think back through to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were busy hiding in the bushes, were they trusting? Okay. So let's do a thought experiment. Let's go back to the Garden and think of that story again. We go back to this thousands of times. But this is the way you want to train yourself to think. Imagine yourself in the garden and imagine talking to Adam and Eve at the point where they're in the bushes, hiding from God. Would it be true or false to say they don't know God exists? Well, obviously they do know God exists. How do you know if Adam and Eve told you in response to your query and they said, oh, I'm, we're not sure he really exists, what would be your counter-argument? Why are you hiding? See, the very act of hiding shows you, yes, you do know he exists. Okay, That story is important, folks, because that's, that's Romans 1 in a nutshell. What does it say in Romans 1? They hold the truth in unrighteousness. What does it mean to hold the truth in unrighteousness? It means we know. That the fact that we, don't, we can't know whether guys... It's just a bunch of baloney and hot air. Just baloney and hot air. Doesn't mean a thing, doesn't mean a particle. It's totally false. What happens is, is that people come to believe they don't believe. They don't know. There's a, there's, a, there's a suppression that's going on far deeper than anything Sigmund Freud ever thought about. And that suppression is the problem. And it's a moral and spiritual issue. It's not an intellectual problem, ultimately. It becomes an intellectual problem because it, when it gets going, it sucks in everything and then people really get deceived and confused. So dece intellectual deception does play a role. But at the root, it's not an intellectual problem. So when, in verse 32, it, verse 32 is directed to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And what verse 32 is promising us is God is for us. He's not beating us up. And standing behind that with powerful support to my trust in God is this picture of knowledge. Now, you never get this in school. Probably because nine out of ten of the people in school, frankly, haven't thought about it themselves. And we lost something when we went to secular education because of this. But in the Bible, there's the creator and creature. And we always think, no matter what the territory is, you can't go wrong. I mean, you may forget stuff and you may, geez, where's that in the script? Don't sweat it. Just remember, you can always get back home if you think of creator-creature distinction. So, here's the creator and here's the creature. What is the creator? A pre-existing thought, language, and meaning. He has an eternal plan for creation and salvation. That's the root of it all. It's his plan that he thought about. It's not uh, how the supercomputer in 2001. It's not some tablet of destinies floating in the universe. This is God's eternal plan of the Creator. And then that makes, once you assume this, and see, this is the moral problem. Here comes the moral spiritual problem. If, to be consistent, if I accept this, 
then that turns all of my knowledge into a certain kind of knowledge, right? If I believe that God is pre-existing, He has pre-existing plans, what about my plans? What about your plans? What about your thoughts? They're all derivative. And they're all to be calibrated by His thoughts. His thoughts are the standard, the reference point. So it makes our thoughts not only finite and limited, it means our thoughts are basically uncalibrated floating things that have to be anchored in his thoughts. So that's why in Scripture we say the, the expression in biblical Christianity over the centuries is think God's thoughts after him. And that means we don't invent truth, we discover truth, we discover his truth. So all that stands behind promises like Romans 8.28 and Romans 8.34 that we've looked at. Father, we thank you for your promises and we pray as we go into the lesson tonight that you would open our hearts to the great truths and struggles that Christians have experienced down through the centuries in trying to think your thoughts after you and get the thoughts in a coherent form. And for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight and, and next week, the last time tonight, next week, possibly the next week, uh, again, I apologize for not getting into the text and moving faster, but it'll help us later when we get into the text to have this by way of background. So if you look at the notes, primarily tonight we're going to go through these notes. And then I'm going to try to illustrate it from text of Scripture. So it's primarily from the notes tonight. To review, uh, page one of the Appendix A, we said that the first half of this series of notes... And you should have tonight in the handout, uh, if you look at page um, 9, you'll see the second half you're starting to see. Page 1 is the Reformed Theology and page 9, Dispensational Theology. <clears throat> so, we're still on the Reformed section. And we said that... We're trying to be careful here. Reformed theology is a tremendous advance in church history. It really is. And I'm trying to be very delicate about my criticisms here because we have much, much, much to be thankful for from those reformers. Those guys put their lives on the line. Uh, subsequent scholars uh, put their lives on the line. Many of them lost their lives. Uh, defending these ideas. And had they not done that, uh, we today wouldn't be sitting here. They saved the church from the human level. They saved the church from total dissolution. I firmly believe that had the Reformation not happened, Islam would have taken over Europe. And so the point is that they, they, they stopped the line they halted that advance intellectually. If Islam hadn't taken over Europe, secularism, Renaissance would have. <clears throat> and the thing to remember, because all of you have been, basically I think most of us, right, come up through public schools. Uh, what was the name you learned to, in school? Uh, what do the teachers tell you was the label, historically, that should be put on the section of time prior to the Reformation? Dark Ages. And what was the title and the name that you learned that was supposed to be when the Dark Ages ended? 
begins with R and it's not Reformation. And the Renaissance. And then after that, if you study history more, they also threw in another cute one. It begins with E. The Enlightenment. Now you see what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? Right now, right there, you've, you've got a bias. And it sneaks up to you because you had to learn it well enough to pass your tests. So it's ingrained up in your soul. And so you're thinking in terms of dark ages and enlightenment. So every time you think of that portion of history, what are you thinking about? Stupid enlightenment. And what was the dark ages? When the only structure was the church. That was the dark ages. <clears throat> then the enlightenment comes when we break away and go back to Aristotle. And we, and we, uh, that's the enlightenment. We get back to the classics. That's paganism. So here we are, brought up in all our history courses, in every school I've ever been in, we label paganism the enlightenment, and we label the time when the Christians were running around Europe, at least, trying to do some things. By the way, the Roman Catholicism did do some things during that period of time. Aquinas wasn't exactly stupid. When they did, they, when the church worked, and who was building the hospitals, by the way? Who was taking care of the sick people? It wasn't Aristotle. It wasn't the secularists. It was the Christians. So that's the Dark Ages. So now comes the reformers, and they open up the scriptures. They're trying to purge the church. The Reformation wasn't to be a reformation of society. It wasn't to be a reformation of the Vandals, a reformation of of paganism, the Reformation has to do with something internal, that judgment begin in the house of the Lord. So it was a going back, and they did a lot of good things. Our criticism, however, on page two, is that they went, they, particularly their followers, you know, usually it's not the person who starts a movement, it's, a, it's just the immediate disciples that ruin it. And one of the problems, one of the strengths, of, by the way, of Reformed theology, and this is why it's coming back today in evangelical circles. It's the last time in the church that anybody can remember that somebody, people thought systematically. And in a chaotic age like we live, there are lots of Christians out there trying to get this stuff together in their head because they're getting hit from too many different things. I mean, first we got an issue here. Now we got something going here. Now we got something here. And you have to say, hey, whoa, hold it. I've got to have a structure to deal with all this. And Reformed theology offers a very coherent, tight, logical structure. But that, unfortunately, becomes its weakness. Because what happened was that the structure we're talking about was devised under attack by Rome in the Counter-Reformation. They were trying to defend themselves. And they devised this, this fortress. The problem with the fortress is that they tried to freeze what was known of Scripture in that century, in those centuries. So that's why I call it the structure freezes, and it freezes in the form of creeds. Now, with all due respect to the Reformers, in, in 200 years, they could not sort out eschatology. They didn't even try. They kept Roman Catholic theology. And so, I, I show you there in pages 2 and 3, we covered three issues. Down at the bottom, page 2, the paragraph, last full paragraph, infant baptism. It was never challenged by the Reformation. Well, the only people that did anything about that were the Anabaptists. The second trend was the belief that the church, uh, was the, uh, page 3, top, 
the government sponsorship of one church within a jurisdiction. Now, Luther, Lutheranism, Germany. Calvin, Zwangli, Reformed Thought, Switzerland. So you, you had these jurisdictions, and of course it was broken down far more, in far more complex form than that. But those were, the, those were the things where there's no Reformation, no Reformation. The Catholic Church had, was the only structure in certain precincts and things. So there's no Reformation on infant baptism, no Reformation on the nature of the church versus the state, and there was no Reformation in the area of eschatology, just to cite some, the major ones. So with all due respect, the Reformed theologians did advance. The weakness, they froze it and didn't permit any further advance. Now we come to, on page four, the content of that structure, that fortress that they erected. And in fighting among themselves to get a rationally coherent theology, they came up with five basic beliefs, which in history go down as tulip. And you'll hear about this. And we're going to go over that tonight. <clears throat> There's a, a lot of truth in these tulip truths. Um, it's not quite as simple as we like to make it out to be sometimes. Prefacing what I'm saying about these five points is think of it this way. Much of what is in each one of these points is in Scripture. The problem is that the, they, they put together the system and they see and link together these things out of Scripture in such a way that the linkage itself becomes a dogma. Let me show you how. Let's take the first one in Tulip. Tulip is the, on page five, Tulip stands for total depravity of man. Now, there's a, there's a common misunderstanding right up front. So, let me warn you about it. This has nothing to do with the Reformation versus dispensational. This is just learning proper vocabulary. When this word total is used in the word total depravity, beware of how you understand total. Total means comprehensive. What it means is, is that every area is infected with sin. That's what it means. It's saying that man spiritually is totally pathological from his top of his head to the sole of his feet. I didn't say from his neck down. And that was one of the weaknesses in medieval theology because Aquinas and others tended to stress the fact that the human intellect had a lot of power by itself unaided by the, by the grace of God. And this led to a scholasticism where trust was put into reasoning. It still has perpetuated to our own day when you hear things like in the Ashcroft hearings, can you put aside your beliefs and enforce the law? No one can put aside their beliefs. For to put aside one's belief in order to do something means I've replaced it with another belief. 
It's like flypaper. You know, imagine a piece of flypaper on the floor, and it's stuck to the bottom of your feet, okay? You're not going to reach down, so you think you're going to be cute, and you're going to step on the flypaper with your other foot and pull this one up. Now what have you done? Put the flypaper on the other foot. So you, have, you still have a belief, and it, it never leaves you. So that's just a bunch of baloney. I was hoping that someone would say to Senator Kennedy, well, sir, Sen the, would the Honorable Senator from Massachusetts tell, tell us how, as a Roman Catholic, he, could say, he uh, sets aside his beliefs in order to favor abortion? And, let's, you know, you want to talk about belief? Let's, yeah, let's just widen the discussion a little bit, see where this one goes. I don't want to do that one now. So, belief is unavoidable. And it's contaminated. So this is good. The total depravity is trying to say something good. Okay? There's a, a scripture. It says, there's none that seek God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's, the, that's what this thing is trying to, trying to summarize. And historically, what it's trying to do, it's trying to destroy the idea that the human intellect is capable of coming to God autonomously, apart from God calling it. Okay? So, so far, everything's cool. Now, if you'll follow the paragraph, watch what happens. The doctrinal formulation is an attempt to spell out the effects of the fall on every member of the human race. So far, so good. The word total refers not to the depth of depravity, which differs from person to person and in area of your life from area of your life, but to comprehensive character of the depravity, that is, that it affects every area of the soul in such a way that no one can come to God without God taking the first step. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Who spoke first? God spoke first. That's the idea. In order to make salvation holy of God's initiating grace and to exclude human merit, Reformed theology makes this expression to assert that no one can believe unless they are first regenerated. Oops. Now we've got a problem. What Reformed theology carries this out under the idea that they understand it so completely that they can come back into the text and where it says you must be born again, argue that you have to be born again in, before you can believe. So, what this leads to is regeneration precedes faith. Now, immediately, we've got a problem with the text here, don't we? Where does it say in Scripture, be born again and then believe? There's, man is always called. The, 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 everywhere you go in Scripture, I mean, there's preaching, there's calling. Of course, the Reformed theologian will say yes, but that's the means through which regeneration happens. But the point I'm saying is that when you set this thing up here, this is an is a extrapolation of an idea rather than actually inductively being built out of passages of Scripture. Okay, now let's go to the second one, the you in Tulip. Well, well, let me follow the text there in, in that same paragraph to, to make sure we've covered it all. <clears throat> the use of regeneration 
to stand for all of God's pre-salvation calling is done for theological consistency with other Reformed doctrines rather than being the conclusion of detailed exegesis of the biblical text. A question arises whether protection of God's initiating grace and elimination of human merit can be done in a fashion that respects textual details more than imposing this meaning upon the term regeneration. In other words, it was a good thing here to try to eliminate human ethical merit, brownie points with God. That's a good idea. It's very scriptural. But we get uncomfortable when we push things out and we start using terms like this. So regeneration means the calling of God, the this of the God, the evangelistic process of God, and all the rest of it. We don't think that the text shows regeneration to refer to that. Okay? You, unconditional election. Now here's another one that we, we can't quibble with it in a certain way. Unconditional election. It's rightly stating something, but then it, it, it kind of does things to it. Let's, let's follow through. <clears throat> By unconditional election, Reformed theology means that God's choice of who is elected and who isn't is not determined by anything outside of God. Now, we agree with that? Who's the creator? What do we always do? Go back to the creator creature. Who, pre who is existing from all eternity? Creator or the creature? Creator. Did God decide then when he decided to create? Was it his decision or the creation's decision? Was the crea creator's decision? Was there any creature around to arm twist and say, God, you've got to do it this way, you've got to do it that way, this and that, you know? Was that around? No. So, is creation holy of God? Yes. Well, if you hold to creation as holy of God, then everything else follows. That God decided without coercion, without nobody around, triunity by itself before creation. So, we would agree with that. But now again, let's watch what happens. Who is elected, who isn't? It is not controlled by the relative merit of men or their foreseen positive response to the gospel offer. Now, a lot of times in our own circles, people say, election is that God foresees who will believe and who won't. Let me turn to Matthew 11. I mean, that, that I appreciate that. I thought that way for a long time until I started studying the text a little bit more carefully. And what do you do with Matthew chapter 11? Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, reproaching the cities that had rejected the gospel. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, 
which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, the, the point to think about in verse 21 is, the Lord Jesus is saying, had more revelation been given to Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Okay? Who controlled the level of revelation? God did. So, God is saying here, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is God, He's saying that there are variable levels of revelational pressure through history. And I know who's going to believe and who doesn't. And I made the decision I'm not going to give these people any more revelation, so they're not going to believe. And had I made the decision to give them more revelation, they would have believed. The big point here is not to get wrapped around the axle here. There's nothing unfair about it. If you back off, if you start to feel tension about this being unfair, you've gone down a wrong road. Back up a minute. Come back up to create a creature distinction again. And think about the creator creating and ordaining a kind of history. Think of him saying to himself, I'm going to create a history in which uh, there is a Satan. Because remember, Satan's created. Okay? Let's, let's forget about man a minute. Okay? Let's just talk angels now. I'm going to make a universe in which there's a Satan who is going to rebel against me. Now, is that God's decision or not? God's decision. He's the top decider. That's all we're defending here. Okay. Unconditional election means unconditioned by anything outside of God. So far, fine. But now let's read further. In other words, God is himself not conditioned by something outside of himself. And by the way, that's a very comforting thought, because if he's conditioned by something outside of himself, how is he perfectly trustable? You've lost, the, you've lost your platform, see. He is absolutely free to do whatsoever he wills, and then I want you to underline the rest of the sentence, because I warn you that every once in a while, this one gets all wrapped around an axle. There's another problem right here, which I have a footnote for. He is absolutely free to do whatsoever his, he wills that is compatible with his nature. If you go down to the footnote and read the fine print, note the phrase that is compatible with his nature. Critics of Christianity, particularly of Protestant Calvinism, sometimes have the mistaken notion that the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty implies that he can do anything, whether rationally or ethically absurd or not. This error attributes voluntarism to God, that is, the idea that he can choose to do anything regardless of his nature. That's the source of these facetious things. Well, God, he could uh, make uh, two, two equal six if he wanted to. Now, in one sense, he could by relabeling numbers. But the idea is that God is a numerical character, okay? He's three and one. He can't make himself in a two and one. That's the way he is. So he's not going to make himself in two and one. He's three and one. And he's always going to be three and one. And he's not going to change from three and one. So he doesn't change his nature. The immutable, remember one of the attributes? What is it? 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's that? Immutability. So God isn't going to change his nature. And that means that there's a stability and we don't have absurdities. That's the basis of reason, by the way. By the way, that's the only basis for reason and rationality, is that God is rational. And if you don't have God as the root of your rationality, then I challenge you to show me where you are standing. Show me a platform on which you're thinking. Where's your reason coming from? And what ultimately you're going to do is you're going to back up and back up and back up until finally you're going to admit that the only basis for your reason is your opinion. And that's, by the way, where we're getting in postmodernism. So, watch it. He is absolutely free to do whatsoever is compatible with his nature and thank him for that because that, again, is a source of our trust and our adoration of him. Viewed one way, this doctrine simply asserts the creator-creature distinction that is in danger of being lost in discussions involving creature free will. In other words, when we talk about responsibility and free will, we want to talk about that, but we want to talk about it such that this is always preserved. That the creature part never becomes the creator. And there's no problem with that. Viewed another way, now here's the, here's the downer. Here's where we have to be careful. Viewed another way, it gets involved in the details of divine decrees, a superlapsarian, infralapsarian discussion. For those of you who wonder what all that big word is, supra, you can take the word apart, you can guess what it means. What's lapse? Lapse, something lapses, it's the fall. Okay? Alright, what do you think? Supralapsarian and infra. Supra means above, infra means below. So above the fall means prior to the fall, and infralapsarian means after the fall, subsequent, you know, to after the fall. So what do you think that refers to? Well, that was an, an argument internal to the Calvinist camp where they imagined that God had a series of decrees. And the two words superlapsarian and infralapsarian refer to when in the sequence of these decrees God decreed to save man. Did he decree to save man prior to the fall? The fall happened, and so on. Or did he, in his mind, let all men fall, and then after the fall, decree who was to be saved and who wasn't? That is, drawing the boundaries of faith and so forth and so on. And that was a big fight inside Calvinism. The problem with that kind of a debate is we're trying to imagine what goes on in God's mind in eternity past. I mean, we can't even imagine what goes on in his mind any time other than what he's told us in Scripture. So this gets into hairy stuff. But this is the kind of stuff, believe me, that was put in creeds. That's what I mean by the Reformation getting all into this heavy stuff, locking it up in concrete so nobody else could change it for the rest of the duration of the church age. And here's an example of it right here. Again, the issue arises over how much emphasis is put is upon filling in details of a theological system via the researching contextual meaning in the biblical text. 
The doctrine of election is discussed in chapter 2. Remember, we dealt with it in Abraham. If you want to see how I dealt with it, now you can go back and see them. Those evenings you thought we were wasting time going through this point, and why do you have to put that point in there? Now you'll see why, because now you can appreciate We'll read back there, and you see how careful I was about how I taught the call of, Abraham, call of Abraham and election and so on and so forth. In fact, you can even see some infralapsarianism in what I said back there. Okay. Let's go to L. Limited atonement. We've already gone through that one. Remember that from last year? We had a special appendix on that one. Remember we were walking through the tools pretty carefully on that one. And remember we were saying how we, we, there are certain things that we knew and then we kind of backed off when we get into the, the little details because they're very difficult to conceptualize. Okay, let's look at this. By articulating the limited atonement, Reformed theology tries to protect. See, in every one of these cases, they're trying to do a good thing. They're trying to protect the work of Christ on the cross from being wasted. In other words, their idea is if you have an unlimited atonement, Christ has done all this work when, when the Son, second person of the Trinity, was the first person of the Trinity's elected people, why the heck should he make salvation apply to everybody when he's, he's only going to save these people over here? So why shouldn't he just make the atonement line up? Why isn't the second and first person talking to each other here? So, limited atonement is seen to be, in Reformed theology, an outworking of the doctrine of election. And they say that otherwise, what you've got is you've got Christ dying for all these people that finally go to hell, and that atoning work is, is just wasted. Or worse than that, it's offered to the creature, and the creature, by his sheer free will, has designed history that he goes to hell anyway. Like he, he's on an equal plane here. And then we breach the created creature distinction. So, by the by, so anyway, following, um, following through that sentence, more than the other points in Tulip, however, this point most clearly alters the contextual meaning of specific biblical references. Remember the discussions we had? What was the one biblical reference? There's many. But what's the one that really sticks in your craw? If you, if you have this view of limited atonement. The one passage that really is the hardest passage in all the Bible for a limited atonement person to deal with. You ought to know this verse. 1 John 2, 2. Turn there a moment. See, here's another example of the rush to put something in a creed before you've had a few centuries to think about it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. This is an example. That you wind up, you get caught in this system, and then you wind up doing handstands when you're trying to exegete the text. Now, I'm not arguing that the, the inherent structure here, all these things are scriptural in, in their broad motivation. It's just when you get into the details, things begin to get screwy. 1 John 2.2. 2. Now, if you are a person who believes in limited atonement, how are you going to deal with verse 2? There are ways of dealing with it. What do you think would be some of them? He himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. How, would you, how do you think a heavy limited atonement person is going to deal with it? They do deal with this. 
but they've got only certain pathways they can use to, to deal with this first. One of them, the most common, yeah, uh, George, did, have you heard how they deal with it in your discussions at work? And it's looking only at those who are going to believe the elect that will be called out of all the nations. Okay? But see, once you, once you make cosmos to be that sense, and it's not just all the nations, it's only the elect in all the nations. It's the world of the elect. Well, now you see what this does is now we could do a little Bible study in the word cosmos. And... You know, I mean, we can't tonight, but look it up in a concordance. Check it out. Does this make sense? When you look it up and look at all the different uses of this word. So, this is an example of what I'm talking about. How the system kind of runs up against the text. Alright, let's go to the next one. I, irresistible grace. Now again, this means God's call is going to be effectual. Was his call effectual to Adam and Eve? Yes, it was. Is God going to work about in history and say, I plead with you. Now watch this one, because this happens in, in evangelism. And this, is, this harps back to the opposite of Calvinism, which is Arminianism, and it does affect the way you evangelize. Oh, would you please trust in Jesus? He's died for you. Would you please trust in him? See, what's going on here? It's, it's, a, it's an impotent appeal with the idea that, gee, um, you may thwart the plan of God. Now, obviously, you can plead with people because you care for them. I'm not talking about that kind of a motive. What I'm talking about here is the idea, oh, won't you please believe in Jesus, in the sense that if you don't, um, Jesus gets hurt or the atonement gets reduced. You see, it, it, it trivializes the power of the gospel. Because the Lord Jesus Christ and the New Testament authors have a picture of the gospel as softening hearts and hardening hearts. What did God do to Pharaoh? Did he come to Pharaoh and say, Oh, please, Pharaoh, would you please believe on me? And the Bible says, Pharaoh rejected. And so God... God gave him more revelation. Gave him more revelation. What do you do? He hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. Well, gee, that wasn't nice to do. Well, what does it say? I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I will damn who I will damn. Now, that doesn't ignore the issue of belief and responsibility, but it's not God pleading at Pharaoh and please help him run the universe. So I think you see that what the motive behind irresistible grace was again to have a lofty, heavy, theological picture of who God is. He's not some little impotent wimp. The doctrine of, and this is why Reformed theology, by the way, when it's hated, when it's hated, it's usually hated out of a satanic motive by the world. This is why the world always hates the Puritans. Uh, the world doesn't know enough theologically to deal with what we're talking about tonight. I mean, what we're talking about tonight is, is in the club. But when you hear people knock the Puritans and you hear people ridicule and this kind of thing, that's just a hatred for the big God these people had. There's anything they can't stand, it's the God of Christianity. Now, isn't this amazing? Why does Islam hate it? 
Why are they chopping Christians' heads off in Alaska tonight who don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ? Christians aren't armed. They're not shooting them. The, the Muslims aren't in any physical danger. Why are they exercising violence against the Christians for? Christians don't even have any weapons. Why the violence? Because they fear that gospel, the message that the Christian God has visited this planet and he is going to damn people who reject his son. And he will have the last word. Period. No matter who you are. High person, low person. Doesn't make any difference. He has the last word. Now that offends. And that brings out a satanic spirit of rebellion, a hatred and an animosity that leads to violence against Christians. So, irresistible grace. Works that God has chosen to occur will certainly come to pass. Grace extended to sinners who are the elect ones, therefore, cannot be successfully rejected. This is Reformed theology. By the term irresistible, now we have to watch, just like we had to watch the word total depravity. The word irresistible is not meant as a steamroller. It means that the grace is never permanently rejected. So there's, kind of, there's a connotation of this irresistible grace that you've got to watch it. Don't criticize it unless you know what they're talking about here. It's grace that's never resisted. That's what they mean by irresistible. Ultimately, it prevails. And it's not a picture that I'm standing in the street and the steamroller rolls over me. That's not what they meant. This doctrinal formulation is a reaction to Arminian emphasis upon a man's apparent capacity to disobey, block, and thwart God's directly revealed will. Can man block and thwart? Yeah, for a while. But not permanently. We're not going to argue that because Judas Iscariot uh, decided he needed some money. By the way, you know, isn't it interesting? Judas Iscariot, I had to laugh at this. I don't really mean this because there's some wonderful accountants, and I mean, I mean, Glenn's right here, so I have to be careful. But, you know, it's interesting because in the, in the business world, we're always knocking sometimes, you know, the, the, the counter, the bean counters. We have a word expression of the bean counters. Well, you know who the bean counter was of the disciples? Judas Iscariot. He's the guy that kept all the books. And the point is here that... If Judas Iscariot, an Arminian position, his plot to uh, how, do the, how does the church, when they're praying about Peter going to jail, what do they say? That these guys are stopping the gospel or what? Remember the church's prayer in Acts 4? They say, all they're doing is doing exactly what you want them to do. And all their animosity and wrath they're fulfilling your will. Praise God. Now that's aggravating because it reminds us that the guy who has the final say is still has the final say no matter what I do. He always gets, he always wins. That's right. Heads he wins, tails we lose. When we want to defy him. So, irresistible grace was a reaction to this Arminian emphasis how, of course, in the end, God's total will is never thwarted. Yet, in often scripture, and this is what you have to be careful about, and this is why we, we get uncomfortable with that way that our irresistible grace is phrased in, in certain creeds. Often in scripture, it involves a three steps forward, two steps backward. You've seen that. What was the conquest? 
Did Israel make it the first time? No. Got defeated, blocked. But that itself was a lesson to teach people to what? Depend on the Lord. So, whole generation goes by, now they try another maneuver. And they get in this time. They get into the land, what happens to the nation of Israel? Falls apart. Was it falling apart because the Assyrians invaded? No. They fell apart first and then the Assyrians invaded. And so you have the prophets of the Old Testament and they struggle with this. How can you do this to us, God? You know, here you are sovereign and you let these enemies come in, you destroy our country and all the rest. And the prophets say, hey, well, it wasn't military power that led defeat. It was your spiritual wickedness that led to your defeat. So the three steps forward, two steps backward is something you see again and again in Scripture. You see hypothetical options. I mean, start talking about hypothetical options, the plan of God. Some reformed people I've known just about gag. But I'm sorry. I still talk about hypothetical options. You want, to, want some of them? Quickies? How about Exodus 32? God says to Moses, Hey, these people are screwing up around here. How about we cut a deal, Moses? I'll knock them all off and we'll start a new nation with you. Now, if God had really done that, we'd have a problem in fulfillment of prophecy, wouldn't we? Because Moses was what? Of the tribe of Levi. And what was the Messiah supposed to come out? Rabbi Judah. But yet you have a conversation between God and Moses. He says, I'm ready to knock off all this nation. We're going to start with you, Moses, all over again. What was that? Was that theater? Or was that a real threat? What about in the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus says, all I have to do is call my Father and we'll have legions of angels here, right now. Was that theater? Or was that a real threat? Was Jesus just talking to his hat? Or was that a real option? And was the result of his decision to trust the Father with himself on the cross, was that real? You bet you it was real. And that hypothetical option of those legions of angels ready to come in, ready to pull a rescue, all that was a real option. And it would have altered history totally from what we know it. So what are these? See, it's that sort of stuff that you see in the text of Scripture if you pay attention to the text and stop reading a theological system into the text. Okay, let's go to the last one. This is, I think you can begin to see some of these are still with us, even in our own circles, who, people who you normally wouldn't think of being reformed of the elect. Now, you and I both know this doctrine, P doctrine, under another name. Anybody know? Doctrine of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. But Reformed theology did more to it. There's more to it involved. And this particular part of Reformed thought is very critical to understand what is meant by F-A-I-T-H. This is a point where you have to put your thinking cap on and watch it. Because the word faith is going to be loaded with some connotations here. And you may disagree with this. So you want to watch what the Reformed camp does to the F-A-I-T-H. This Reformed doctrine can be understood several ways depending on how one reads the phrase. 
It could mean the elect persevere in obedient faith without serious lapses from which they fail to recover before their death. Now let's go through that sentence. It's, it's packed. It could mean, perseverance, that you are a believer tonight, and if you are a real believer, then you will persevere to the end of your life. You won't go down in disobedience. Okay? That's an idea. Perseverance of the elect. That's what it means. Persevering faith. Per faith that perseveres to the end. And can't you remember, can't you guess what nice quote they use? In, in the gospel, Jesus said of those in the tribulation, those who what? Persevere to the end are saved. Ooh. What are you going to do about that one? We're going to interpret it in context. That's what we're going to do with it. That's an eschatological passage. And Jesus meant what he said. problem is you've got to understand what the word S-A-V-E means there in that context. So, again, that's one way of taking it. Now let's go to another way. It could also mean that the elect persevere in a saved status in spite of unrecoverable lapses due only to God's faithfulness to bless and to chasten. Frankly, I'm more comfortable with the second statement than I am the first one. The issue isn't that I'm persevering. The issue is that God's persevering. And it's so ironic at this point, with all the heavy emphasis on the sovereign power of God, we wind up in this fifth point that it's the elect that are doing the persevering. Now, I understand. There was answers to that. Their understanding is that in their terms, this word faith means... The manifestation, what did we say you had to have before you could believe? Regeneration. If you're truly regenerated, from the time you're saved until the time you die, you may have little humps and bumps, but you're going to wind up okay. That's the idea of perseverance. Okay? Now... If there's one thing that cuts across the grain of all this and upsets anyone who believes this, for in a superficial way, they're right. Is it true or not true that what God begins, He finishes? Yeah, He finishes. So, what they're trying to do is argue for eternal security in the sense of protecting again the idea, if God starts to do something, He finishes it. He doesn't leave it half done. He doesn't get it blocked by man, and so forth. In that, we agree. That, that's a godly motive. That what God starts, He finishes. The problem is, we have to be careful by looking at the text, what individual lives look like in the text. According to the historical Old Testament passages, did Solomon go out of this life in a happy state? No. Gosh, I wonder if Solomon was a believer. Maybe he wasn't regenerated. Didn't have persevering faith. What about the person in Corinthian church? that took communion and dropped dead. 
What about those in Corinth that are called carnal? Oh, oh, you don't understand, says the Reformed person. He says, that's referring there to people who might not be elect that are in the congregation. You've got to be sure they're saved. You've got to keep preaching the gospel to them every Sunday because they might not be saved yet. So, you, you see what happens here. So, let's follow again. Um, did I hit this thing? Uh, let's follow again the text. The former meaning, that's the first one, you might want to put a number one around that first sentence where it could mean the elect persevere in obedient faith. Put a number two in front of the... It could also mean that the elect persevere in a safe status. And that way you'll see the two, two statements. The former meaning, that is the number one meaning, is one that was emphasized strongly in later Reformed theology, such as that of the Puritans, and by Lordship Salvation advocates today who follow the Puritans on this point. It entails concepts of false and saving faith, whereby assurance of saving faith... Now watch this. Another important point that follows immediately from that statement. You just put a circle on one. All right, watch this, because this comes out of that statement. Assurance of saving faith is contingent upon continual fruit in the life. Okay? Faith and assurance are separated in this view to, quote, protect against licentious living so that the Protestant and Catholic views of faith ironically wind up as strikingly similar. In other words, what do we say that Luther and Calvin believed about faith? Faith they define to be assurance. Imagine Luther. I mean, anybody that knows Luther's biography... Here he was. What it, was he, had, he needed certainty that he was saved or he would never have had the courage to go out and take on the world. It was, he was acting off a platform of assurance. Assurance started his path. It wasn't the result of his wonderful life. So assurance and faith in Reformed theology are separated. Assurance is something that is derivative. You have assurance afterwards. You've got to keep looking to make sure that the fruit's there in order and so forth. The problem with that is, how do you get the fruit if you don't have assurance that you're accepted with God? If I have a life-dominating problem, I need assurance, I need moral power, I need a sense of God's presence to get me out of the hole. I don't climb up the ladder, get out of the hole and say, boy, that shows you I have what it takes. So, I think you can see from what we've gone through this tulip thing tonight that there's a lot of stuff embedded in this theology and you've got to watch it. You can use Bible words, you can use verses of Scripture, and it's really greasy. So, it behooves us to pay it cl close attention. Okay, let's continue and we'll finish up with this paragraph we're on. Bottom page 6. Not only that, but the separation of faith and assurance mirrors even more ironically the Arminian notion of faith because what does Arminianism believe? That you can have it and lose it. Well, now, let's think about it. Here's, here's a guy, okay? Watch, watch how they both come out with the same analysis. Let's take uh, Solomon or somebody like Solomon. They show what we'll call faith. They show faith. They go, oops. Show disobedience. 
Now along comes two analysts. One is a Calvinist and the other is an Arminian. What's a Calvinist? What's his interpretation of what's going on there? Never was a believer in the first place. What's the Arminian analyst say? Had it and too bad he lost it. Now, as we will see, there's another way of handling that, a third way. The third way is that he, as Solomon, was like the nation. He was elect. He was a genuine believer. He got out of it. He disobeyed God, and God clobbered him, took him home prematurely, gave him discipline in his life. The author of Hebrews says, if you disobey and be without chastisement, you're a bastard. You're not saved. So the idea there is that you can, you can interpret this a number of different ways. But it gets back to your overall approach. Okay, page seven, just finishing up this one section here. The first meaning of the doctrine of perseverance characterized the original uh, reformers. The Calvin, for example, um, I shouldn't say the second meaning of the doctrine of penance, as, as I rephrased it. Uh, Calvin, for example, did not separate faith from assurance. In his view, they were identical, okay? Because one has assurance of salvation, one can walk by faith. Now look at that statement. How do you walk by faith if you don't have assurance? Come on. You've got to have it in order to walk by faith. The danger of licentious living is controlled, in this view, by divine chastening and the future judgment of the believer. We haven't got into the future judgment of the believer and the removal of rewards. Yeah, you set your own eternal status. status. See, that's something else that Reformed theology doesn't like to think about, that it's really sobering to understand that if I sit here and waste my life, I mark myself for eternity. It's a, I build my eternal destiny in one sense as a child of God. I screw up, then I, I've lost opportunities to be productive. So it, it's no easy... Not holding to Reformed theology doesn't mean that you're opening the gospel up to loose living, which apparently they always think this. Because one has assurance, one can walk by faith. Okay, the last sentence. It relies upon the perseverance of God instead of that of the believer. This view tends to understand, and this controls, by the way, your interpretation of a lot of New Testament passages. This view tends to understand New Testament admonitions as being directed to believers who are in danger of divine chastening and loss of rewards. How would a Calvinist, reformed person, understand, uh, I mean, just abstractly now, not, we're not dealing with a specific text, but how do you think, what would be the trend in a reformed person if they see a warning passage in the scripture and it's addressed in epistle? Huh. Well, that must be that Paul or the author is, is uh, he wants to make sure everybody's saved in the congregation by threatening them. Threatening them. But when they, that, that means the threat is sort of an evangelism inside the house. So that, that characterizes a lot of Bible interpretation. So you have to be careful. 
That's the kind of thing I want you to think about when we come in, as we are well now, into Pentecost, separation is from the church, and these things, where we go into these passages, that you'll have this background now to help understand this. Now, next week, we're going to deal with the organizing principle of the covenant. That's a big word in most Reformed people. You'll see that name, covenant, in a lot of their ministries. And it's there for a purpose, because they believe in one theological covenant. One basic covenant, the covenant of grace. They have some others, but basically it's one single covenant, not the individual biblical covenants we've been talking about. So we want to be sure you read that uh, about what they mean by covenant structure versus what we mean by covenant structure. Father, we thank you for our time tonight, and we thank you that you have said, exercised your wonderful patience toward the church down through the centuries of time, including our own generation. And we ask that you would guide us in our understanding of Scripture that we may walk by faith in obedient fashion to your commands. In Christ's name, amen. have some questions uh, on tonight, what we covered, hopefully. Covered an awful lot of stuff. Our leadoff person. Yes, Debbie, thank you. <laughs> uh, just a comment about the last, the last statement that you were saying. Um, you know, how would they, you know, interpret a warning in Scripture and how they, how they would view that. And I know from my own past, you know, being raised in a church that believes you could lose your salvation, the way you would view those kind of warnings was almost like the bar just keeps going higher and higher. You know, it was almost like this was a, you know, it was, it was like a standard that just kept going higher and higher to measure whether you were saved or not, whether you had redeeming faith or not. So it, you know, it was like you never could have attained to the assurance because the bar just kept going higher. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like... Oh, yeah. Because you never can live... I mean, you never at one point seem to be following all of the warnings right. in the Scripture to the extent that they are given. And, you know, so the bar just keeps going higher, especially like in... You know, some of the things that Jesus would say, you know, if, if, if you... A Sermon on the Mount. Against your brother without a cause, you don't get murdered. I mean, you know, it's like the bar just kept going higher and higher. So your assurance, you never obtained assurance. Right. The bar just kept going higher. Yeah, the, the idea that every the warning passages really discourages you in one sense because the bar does seem to go higher in that viewpoint. Um, I was intrigued back many years ago. Uh, I forgot who I talked to. Um, it was a biblical, it was a guy who was unusual for counselor. He, he had a very good theological training. And um, I asked him, asked him or I uh, corresponded with him or something. I forgot what the circumstance was. But I, I asked him, I said, you know, in Christian counseling, when you work with people with, with really bad news problems, depression and that sort of thing, uh, have you ever observed 
what theological leanings they are. Could you ever do a statistical study of that? And he says, oh, yeah, he says, obvious. He says, uh, 80 to 90 percent of the people that come that are depressed and uh, upset and so on for counseling are all come out of an Armenian background. And, uh, I mean, he just unhesitated, just boom, right like that. And that, that's this, this constant turmoil of, of not being able to rest in the scriptures. Uh, because, see, the, the sad thing is that there's something good about, uh, in, in Armenian circles, uh, we, we have to be careful here. John Wesley uh, was Armenian, a bend. Uh, he was in the Church of England, but he basically you know, did his thing that way. And he was reacting against uh, placid, complacent Calvinism. That's where these pendulums get started, see. And if you think about it, when, what was one of the things that the Reformed, theologian, the Reformed theology didn't do to Rome? They, they kept churches identical to the political jurisdiction. So what was Wesley's situation? He's in England. What was the church in England that dominated the whole scene? Church of England, the Anglican Church. And when you dominate the whole scene, what tends to happen? I mean, if you have no political enemies and you are it, you're a big man, you tend to get fat and lazy. And that's what happens to these institutional state churches. And the, there are some godly people in there saying something's wrong around here. And so they would launch off into these deeper life spiritual crusades and there was nothing wrong, again, with the motive. Many of these things, the motives aren't the problem. It's just where it goes. And so they wanted to straighten things out. And, and Wesley tried to reform the Church of England and, and have a disciplined approach and this and that. And that's why the word Methodist arose. And so he, he wanted to do these things. The problem is that in order to walk in the Christian life, you've got to walk by faith. Now, how do you walk by faith if you don't have assurance? You've you got, you got the cart before the horse here. And you've got to get the theology straight. And if nothing else, I think it helps. It's helped me to think this through and justification and faith and all the rest of it. It's just think the simple story of Martin Luther's life. I mean, here he was as a, a, a priest tormented with his idea of sin. And knowing full well that he was a sinner. I mean, there's nothing wrong with knowing we're sinners. It's healthy because it keeps us from thinking that we have some brownie point machine that we can do all these great things and God's going to be impressed with it. It helps keep a perspective on your life. A good concept of total depravity keeps a kind of a skeptical sense of humor about yourself. You can't take yourself too seriously if you really believe in total depravity. So that's good. What becomes bad is what Debbie's talking about, is where after a while you just get beat down to the point where you're ashamed to go before God, you can't, you feel like a failure, you feel like you've screwed up here, you screwed up there, everywhere I look I screw up, and um, there's just this depressive spirit that comes because you, you get so frustrated with yourself, because you know all the areas where you, we don't follow the scriptures. Well now, imagine in that mental state, how do you get out of that state and start walking by faith so that you can obey? I mean, it's a vicious cycle. You get discouraged because you disobey, get out of it, get, lose assurance, and then 
because you lost assurance, you cut yourself off from the filling of the Holy Spirit and, and, and trusting the Lord and operating by faith, and then more stuff happens. So it just, it just goes down the tubes. So that's why you want, you've you got to go back to assurance. And of course, one of the ways uh, to do that is, is it does involve something. It's not being saved again. It's being knowing the doctrine of restoration confession. Going back to Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51. How did David deal with the problem? I mean, David dealt with a real mess. And after he confessed, he had to live through the mess. I mean, the problem is, when you, when you really screw up in the Christian life, you create all this garbage. And then, for the next 150 miles, you, you're walking through garbage. And that can be depressing because you know the garbage is your fault. So, so how, do you, how do you keep it up? Well, you have to keep going back and saying, wait a minute, God says he forgave me. He forgave me. I'm justified in Christ. Because otherwise, Satan will always take you down and you see this piece, of, this crud, this crud, this crud, and he just gets you looking at all that and finally you say, hey, this, I'm, I'm totally out of it here. So, the, all this heavy theology stuff, folks, has very practical um, impact. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that um, on the one hand, you go off into Arminianism where you have a great sense of sin. Uh, but then the problem is you don't know what to do with it. And there's no relief from it. Complacent, and Calvinism can become very complacent. And uh, you, you can say, oh, well, I'm elect and no problem. And, it's just total shallowness, absolute shallowness, no sense of God's righteousness. Enough. And I'm, I'm not saying all Reformed people do that. I'm just saying that's, that's, that can happen. Or you can be like many of the Puritans. And I, 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 if you ever have time and you want to go to the bookstore or the library, um, pick out uh, John Owens, for example. He was one of the great Puritan exegetes. And uh, he, he, when he, this guy went through the book of Hebrews, you know, he put it in seven volumes. And these guys had, you know, well-oiled pens when they, when they did work. Uh, read, um, read, go look it up, look up some Puritan authors and just read them. And you will find that they have tomes this thick. Some of the stuff is wonderful. It's really uplifting. I mean, the, the Puritan manuals on, on their church life were fantastic. But, but where they get off into things is they have these big tomes where they call a conversion morphologies. That's the academic buzzword for those kind of books. Conversion morphology. And what that is are these, these big, thick, ponderous meditations on making sure that you are of the elect. Fruit examination every day to see, do we have fruit? This sort of thing. And after a while, I mean, this gets depressing. And that's why oftentimes you hear that of the Puritans, that they were walking around like this, and, you know, they, they dark black clothes and all the rest of it. Well, some of it's caricature. But others of it is this morphology, this, uh, this total preoccupation. And you see what happens in spite of all the theology and the heavy theocentricity of their position in practice, you're not looking up, you're looking in doing exactly what Roman Catholicism did before the Reformation. So that's, what, that's where it's so insidious that you have to keep a balance here. And that's why I'm taking you through the Reformed theology. And we, 
the area that we're talking about in contrast to dispensationalism really is not... When, when, the stuff we're talking about tonight, the tulip stuff, isn't really the stuff that is directed against dispensationalism. Dispensationalism wasn't around when tulip was created. I'm just giving you the tulip to see the background of the thought that led to covenant theology, which is directed, and that does clash with dispensationalism. But I'm trying to be careful here because I honor these people. I'm not trying to knock them in the sense that, well, we know so much more than you do. If we were living back then, and I had my choice, I'd live with them. Believe me. I wouldn't be living in some animal farm in England somewhere in the Church of England where it was as cruddy as it was. Uh, so, so these people broke ground for us. It's just that it's like, you know, you get raised in a family and you see things in your family that you say, well, I can improve on that. And you wouldn't want, to, you wouldn't want your grandfather or great-grandfather to say, you're not going to do that. Uh, you, you're going to, I believe this and the rest of my generations are going to believe this. Well, how would you feel about that? God isn't going to teach you something that he didn't teach your grandfather. It's not disrespectful to your grandfather to say that God's going to teach you. You're going to stand on his shoulders and you're going to grow more. That's what history's about. History didn't stop in 1700. Yes, Debbie. Yes. How they would have yes. to deal with grace and total depression. I mean, it just seemed like when they got off the mark, it was that same thing. It was, it was speculative. It was human rather than letting God be God and realize that he was not limited. So he didn't have to, like, like even wasted, like wasting his grace, limited atonement. I mean, the only reason why we are concerned about waste and need to conserve is because we have limits. You know, where God has no limits, so shame that, you know, limited grace, he doesn't, or limited atonement, he doesn't need limited, you know what I mean? It's, it's not the shame, <laughs> it's like judging it on our level, right. not on God's dimension. Yeah. Well, that's why I say, I, I, that's why you've seen me over the years here. I keep saying create a creature distinction. I know you think, you know, gosh, here he goes again. Uh, but the reason I keep doing that is we can't get enough of it. Because I think if you hold to that, it tends to balance you in this stuff. And you don't get off in these things. What, what really did happen is what, like Debbie said, you read the writings and it's as though their model of God is us. And how we would do something. And it's visualized that way, and that controls the language and the, how they set the creeds up. Whereas if you think about it in Scripture, as much as we don't like it, as much as uncomfortable as this sense, I'm sure you've all had this sense, is you see this truth in Scripture, you see this truth in Scripture, you want to be sure they don't contradict, but on the other hand, boy, I can't see how they both go together. 
and yet, yet you sit there and you rest. Well, why do you rest that way? Because remember that promise, one of the promises we drilled on was Philippians, and it said um, that the peace of God that what? Passes all understanding will keep your hearts. And that's what that Paul's talking about. He says, the peace of God, finally, is beyond your comprehension. And you can't, um, you can't sit there and think you've got it all knocked. And after you do that grand act of thinking it all through, then you're going to have peace. It never happens that way. George. Well, I, I, yes, George, that's true, but I, I would be very careful about saying that to someone in the Reformed no, camp, because they would react, they would react to you pretty fast on that one. Right, and that, but that's not completely what they did. No, it was that they didn't. I, I think the, I think the best way, George, of being merciful and gracious in this area is to say that no matter how brilliant they were under the guns of the 16th and 17th century, they couldn't have thought this through. We couldn't have thought it through. It's not knocking them. Yeah, but when, also, when, when, did the, when did the renewing of the, of the Greek logic, you had talked about that at one point, I thought, where that kind of came back into the culture? Well, does that, does that correspond to that time? Well, no, the, the, the Renaissance was a time when they became aware, more aware in their education of the great works of the past. But the great works of the past never really had ceased inside the church because you had Aquinas. Aquinas knew Aristotle backwards and forwards. Uh, so there were some of the classics known in the church. But by the time you get to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, I mean, everything's going that way. So um, they brought back a lot of those things. And uh, it's just unbelief has, you know, 80, 100 forms in it. And it's just that when you get away from Scripture, what you wind up doing is you, you accord too much authority to human reason. No, I don't think so. Not that I know of. I mean, I was raised in a very liturgical church. Uh, I was the altar boy, and I can remember the priest doing the same thing. It was a Protestant Episcopal church, and he would sit there and slosh the wine around and drink it. But I, I don't think limited atonement, and limited atonement was going. Up. Well, it might be something in that sense. But it's, in, it's trying to be respectful, right. though. It's trying to be respectful. But uh, I, I think the Lord understands that if uh, one of the things my wife and I often remark about, because when my son was in Okinawa, one of the things he used to do in his time off, he would go down underwater and have his quiet time. And the reason he used to do that, with the snorkel and stuff, is that he loved to watch the fish. And in Okinawa, the water is very, very clear. 
and you can see coral and fish and so forth. And Jonathan always used to say, you know, isn't it amazing? Look at the colors that God has put on these fish, and nobody looks at them. I mean, isn't that a waste? Think about it. The deep sea creatures that we don't see, nobody sees. He could have painted them gray. Why does he, why does he put all the artwork in the back closet? Because that's just his effulgence, his glorious grandeur. Um, and, and we would say he wastes, but he doesn't. It's like Debbie said, he's, and it's not a waste to him. He probably enjoys it, because what does Genesis say? He saw what he had made, and he said it's good. And that's a craftsman. That's the craftsman part of our God. He loves his own works. Yeah, he enjoys it. So, yes, fine. For what? For what, Mike? Everybody hear what Mike's saying? Uh, Mike's bringing out an interesting point that Reformed theology, if you are sitting within the Reformed camp and looking at evangelism, this has been a problem. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote a book, by the way, Sovereignty of God and Evangelism, Sovereignty of God, in which he, he struggles with this very problem. That's, that's what that book's about. Uh, but the way to think about God's sovereignty and his choices and the gospel invitation. There's a neat place in scripture that you can use to think this through, and it doesn't involve salvation. It involves something analogous to it, a physical situation. It's in Acts 26. And if you read Acts 26, it, this has helped me over the years. When I think I'm drifting here, I go back to Acts 26. I never heard anybody else do this, um, but just, just me. Um, in Acts 26, there's a shipwreck. And Paul, at this, as the ship begins to wreck, he is told by an angel that everybody will be saved. So now there's the, there's the destiny all set up for you. And then he spends the rest of the time pleading with the captain, yelling and screaming and carrying on that everybody stay on the boat or they won't be saved. Now there's an interesting example of Paul. Because he clearly had an, a the, almost a theophonic, theophanic encounter with God before that accident started. And all during the time the ship is wrecking, he's pleading with the centurion to get these guys on board or none of them are going to be saved. Now how can we put this together? Here, here he's told before about the outcome. 
And then he's talking about the means to get there. And the way I remember back years ago, I sat in a class with Charles Caldwell Ryrie. And uh, the neat thing about studying on Dr. Ryrie is that he, we used to call him the Perry Como of theology because he always had this kind of um, suave, quiet way and a very practical way of handling these hot potatoes. And um, he used to look up at us. He, he'd start off the sovereignty of God by one class. He would read every passage he could find on the heavy and the sovereignty of God. In the very next class, he'd read everything believe, choose, believe, 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 addressed to the believer's choice. And then he said, well, gentlemen, he says, uh, any hyper-Calvinists here, by the way, he would say. And uh, he'd say, uh, do you eat three times a day? Well, yeah. Why do you do that? And he stopped. Now think about it. If you can't lengthen your life or shorten it, what are you concerned about eating? Because somehow, eating is the means of reaching that goal. And that's the problem. The means and the end get warped in this heavy, in this heavy Calvinism thing. You, you get to the point where the end gets fixed, but it's never fixed independently of means. And so the means, one of the means, is evangelism. And it's helped me over the years, Mike, to think about witnessing an evangelism as a two-edged sword. That when we witness and when we evangelize, uh, not that right there somebody has to trust the Lord, because we know that doesn't happen, but something actually does happen when a gospel presentation is made. That something is happening in that heart. And they may be driven from the gospel. It's a sobering thing to think about. But the act of witnessing creates historically the elect and the non-elect. Think of it this way. The elect and the non-elect aren't, aren't existing, are they? Until they believe. No such thing. The Bible ever talk about unbelieving uh, elect before they believe? I don't think you can find a passage of scripture that deals with that. The elect are identified as they believe. So they come into existence historically through the preaching of the Word of God. And so that's why in Arminianism, remember I got down here this plea, oh please trust God, and you know, God's going to be terribly depressed for all eternity because you didn't believe. You know, you really messed up his plan. That's not evangelism. You don't see Paul going to the Athenians and say, oh, would you please trust the Lord? No. He says, listen guys, God commands all of you to repent. You know why? Because he's going to point at a man that's in the day of judgment, he's going to judge all of you. So get your...